Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiatives podcast. I'm Dr. Eric Crampton, Chief Economist with the Initiative, and today we're going to be talking about competition and land use planning. One of the weirder aspects of New Zealand has been that competitors historically used to be able to block each other's developments through land use planning processes that were strictly anti-competitive. Some of that's been dialed back, but it's coming back in other ways. We saw it during the supermarkets market study. Loyal listeners here would have heard us talking about that at that point and how the underlying issues really seemed to be that not enough land was zoned for a new competitor to get a foothold. Now, with me today, we've got Kevin Council. Kevin is an economist with NERA, previously had been seconded in with Commerce Commission a couple of times. He's the vice president of the Law and Economics Association of New Zealand and has worked ages back with Charles Rivers Associates. He's expert in this stuff, and he unfortunately has had to be involved in a lot of these processes where New Zealand seems to require that competitors prove that they will not compete actually all that much if they want to be allowed to do anything. It seems perverse, and I want to learn more about it. So good morning, Kevin. Morning, Eric. So walk me through this. Give me a typical example now of the kind of reports that are required in our resource management process. Yeah, so there's a couple of aspects to it that economists are often involved in. And one is these so-called retail distribution effects, and I can explain a bit more about that later. But it's basically showing that a new shopping centre or anything like that is not going to have an adverse effect on existing shopping centres. So you're not going to adversely affect the amenity values of existing shopping centres. So it's effectively an avenue for existing competitors to be able to block new developments. That's one of them. The second aspect of what these reports look like is that they often have to analyse demand. I often get involved in these and I have to show that there's going to be sufficient demand for a new development. So you might have a residential development and you need to show that there's going to be enough demand for that. And we've got economists like myself sitting behind our desks, crunching numbers. It really does get into the details of the assumptions of this. There's often economists on the other side. Whereas really we should be just assuming that a rational investor who's got skin in the game, unlike us economists, who's got skin in the game, has sunk a lot of investment in these developments, they're not going to undertake that investment if there's not enough demand for them. So you've got these two factors that are the basis for these reports. So I'm going to try and steel man this just to make sure that it's as crazy as I think it is. So I'll try and make the best possible case for requiring this kind of thing. And you tell me if I'm crazy or if there are better ways around it than what we are currently doing. So imagine that I'm counsel and a developer has proposed a new development on the edge of town and it's going to cost me as counsel a lot of money to provide services into it. And it'll work out for me as council if there winds up being a lot of people who buy into that development. They're going to be paying rates and water charges and other stuff. And that will wind up covering the cost of the kit that I'm putting up as council. And if there isn't enough demand there in a hurry, well, maybe I'm going to eat a loss on that as council and that I'm going to have to spread those costs to the broader community. So could we imagine this as being just a way that councils are making sure that they can recoup the infrastructure investment? 
Well, it's one way of doing it, but there are other ways of recouping the infrastructure investment. And and one is the development contributions. Development contributions are where they go to the developer and you say you are required to make a contribution to our infrastructure. The second way is actually a lot of the infrastructure is part of the development, is wrapped up in the development. The developer incurs the costs of that, so we would expect the developers, the, the benefits to be greater than the cost. So the developer's not going to want to do it in the first place. Yeah, I thought it was crazy. I just wanted to make sure. And it certainly couldn't apply in cases like, well, this is one that I had come across. You'll have a whole pile of other war stories. But the one that had just really surprised me when I was involved in the supermarkets market study, there was a report that property economics had to do for a new world on Dominion Road and as a retail impact assessment. I've never seen one of these before. And the whole point of the thing seemed to be to prove to council that there was so much excess demand in the area that they wouldn't be competing really with existing supermarkets. Now, it's a big report, 30 some pages of extensive analysis. It wouldn't have been cheap to produce this. And they did this report as part of the COVID fast track consenting process. So they seem to believe it was required that they prove that they not be competing too much in order to get consent, even through that fast track process. Is this kind of thing pretty typical? It, it is. Yes, it is typical. This is the sort of thing, and I do this sort of stuff as well, and in, in some ways I feel a little bit embarrassed to be doing it because you could write a one-pager saying why do we need to show that there is sufficient demand, but it is required. A lot of it has come down to two recent national policy statements, the NPS Urban Development, NPS UD, and the NPS HPL, Highly Productive Land. It was, however, going on before that, and I think that report may have been predated those but particularly the NPS HPL it, now just for a reminder for our listeners I'll interrupt you the NPS HPL is a, on highly productive lands that's the piece of legislation that makes it really hard to do anything not just on like sacred potato grounds in Pukekohe but also on the approximately 9% 10% of the country that's in LUC3 category that's basically sheep paddocks and dairy farms yes that's right and, and so what we get, and these are a lot of the cases I'm involved in, is we have rural land, highly productive land, that the farmers, for whatever reason, they want to turn into development, often residential development, which we're in a housing crisis, so it's probably a good thing. Do we have a paddock shortage? I <laughs> I don't believe we do. But, but we do have a housing uh, shortage. We do have a housing okay. shortage. I mean, if we had a paddock shortage, we'd be seeing that in prices, and we're not, and prices are going to tell you what sort of shortage we're having. So we get a lot of this conversion of rural land to residential developments. I'm doing another one at the moment that is an industrial development. But what the NPS HPL says is that if you're doing that, there needs to be, I think the words are something like sufficient development capacity. And this is over the next 10 years. And this is where the supply and demand analysis comes in. You have to show that there is going to be demand for that particular rezoning or that particular development. So when I hear this as an economist, and I'm sure the same thing has occurred to you, this is just 
first order terrible from a competition perspective. So we have a commerce commission. It's supposed to be spending all of its time going after cartels, making sure that markets function well, that they're not being turned to the benefit of insiders through collusion agreements. Legislated requirements that a potential competitor prove that there is so much excess demand in the market that they wouldn't be having adverse effects on amenities provided by existing competitors or on retail distribution of existing competitors, to me, sounds like a legislated, horrible, anti-competitive setup designed to protect incumbents against any competitors ever coming through anywhere, or at least making it so expensive that they just won't do it. Exactly. It's a classic entry barrier that economists look at, and entry barriers are incredibly important in, in economics. Now, to its defence, the Commerce Commission actually picked this up. In the grocery market study... Yeah, after I yelled at them for yeah, a while. <laughs> maybe that's why they picked it up. That's great. They did notice it, and they made some recommendations around it. Unfortunately, those recommendations have gone nowhere. They made two specific recommendations. One was that the benefits of competition are allowed to be taken into account in these sort of proceedings. But any adverse effects on competition, these retail distribution effects I'm talking about, are not allowed to be taken into account. Now that did not get picked up in the Natural and Built Environment Act, which was the replacement legislation to the RMA. It's now been repealed. It wasn't picked up. I don't know where that recommendation has gone, but I think it's important that it, it remains top of the uh, list. Absolutely. In our submission on the National, Natural and Built Environment Act and the Spatial Planning Act, we'd gone through and looked at it, and the legislation as I was reading it didn't just prohibit consideration of effects on trade competitors, which is sensible, like you want to ban somebody from putting in a submission saying, don't allow this because it will hurt me as a competitor, but any effects of competition which to me would include beneficial effects. So if I wanted to put in a submission saying, please allow another supermarket in Kendala because I would love there to be more competition in my neighborhood and I as a consumer will enjoy the benefits of greater competition, they would have to ignore the submission because it's about the effects of competition. I think that's my understanding of it too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that legislation's all getting wiped and National's going to be doing a redo on it. But I was kind of disappointed that the Commerce Commission wasn't more involved in all of this because in the supermarkets case, they had said, well, we're not going to have much to do with this because central government is redoing the RM processes, resource management. They're going to be drafting new legislation. So we're not going to look too much into land use. And they didn't seem to be that active in pushing for a competition lens to be put over the top of all district and regional plans to make sure that plans were leaving room for competition. I think that's right. It's been two very separate issues for a long time. And even I kind of consider myself one of the only economists that looks at both competition stuff and this resource management stuff. I don't know if there's many in the country. There's a lot of them that do the RMA stuff and there's a few competition economists. Uh, when you look across both, you see it and it's obvious. But that's right. The commission has never really been involved in this land use planning aspect but competition there is just as important as it is anywhere else 
Yeah. And when you look at it that way, a few things start looking suspicious, right? So there was one case in Ashburton a couple of years ago where a new retail development on the outskirts of town, they would built, they had one retail tenant that was anchored in and they were expecting to take on more. Ashburton Council set a plan change that forbid them from taking on new retail tenants on the basis that it would be bad for Ashburton's downtown. Now, whatever you want to think about the amenities provided by a a small town's downtown, that sounds like a collusive cartel arrangement by well-connected downtown landowners to the detriment of somebody who's just sunk a whole pile of capital to provide some competition. Now, I, I have no reason to believe that anything untoward happened. Nobody should be suing me for libel on this. It's just on a first order, what's the effect of this? it is strongly anti-competitive. And it's the kind of thing that in a sane world, I'd expect the competition authority to be just jumping all over. Yeah, and the Ashburton example is not unique. There's a lot of cases like that, and I'm involved in them, and I'm often doing this sort of analysis of these retail distribution effects. And this is the way they sort of leverage it in. We talked about trade competition. Rightly so, that's not allowed under the RMA, but these sort of retail distribution effects is going to affect amenity that is allowed and that is part of the case law. So yeah, there's not necessarily anything untoward about it, but but it is happening and it's part of the system and the way it all works and it doesn't give good outcomes either. So I mean, the other thing is you're effectively prioritising the amenity in that specific example of a declining town centre. It's probably declining for a reason over new competition which is going to benefit consumers and if we really do care about the overall benefit of New Zealanders and consumers then we need to allow that new competition. Yeah it's like nobody goes back and has a check on the processes afterwards to see whether they are achieving a real public benefit or whether they are unintentionally having anti-competitive effects because I doubt that like none of this would have even occurred to people who were setting the legislation and it certainly wouldn't occur to town planners when they are setting zoning that the effect is entrenching little local monopolies because they simply haven't zoned enough capacity for new competitors to come through and it's frustrating when you then get into spots where you have market studies that are kind of beating up on existing players because of a lack of competition without properly looking back at the underlying reasons for it. Yeah, that's right. And I think part of the issue too is, and you sort of touched on it there, is a lot of the town planners don't understand these concepts of competition and even the councils and things like that. I did a presentation to the New Zealand Planning Institute a couple of years ago on the commission's grocery market study and what they were finding and what the implications were for planners. And a lot of the feedback I got was that, wow, this is all new to us. This is great stuff to know. So I'm hopeful that they can continue to learn those sort of things. So tell us some, some war stories of the kinds of cases you've been involved in and it sounds like you're trying to put yourself out of a job, really, that if we had a better legislative framework, you wouldn't be doing this kind of work anymore. Presumably you'd be doing other, well, more fulfilling work because this stuff seems completely futile. Exactly. And I've often thought, I don't want to put myself out of a, out of a job here because you're right. I, I don't really see the necessity for it. So I'll give you an example. And this is one I've been working on very recently. It's for an industrial development. 
And this is really comes down to the demand assessment. It's rural, highly productive land. So it's being converted to industrial. And because of that conversion, we're losing the highly productive land. So we need to show that there's enough demand for this new industrial development. Now, the developer has got an adjacent development, industrial development already going, and demand is just through the roof. He's just, he's getting inquiries without even listing things, all of this sort of stuff. He has had no problem selling the existing ones. He is not at all worried about the demand for the new ones. But what we have is economists. I'm involved for the developer, and there's an economist working for the council as well. And we are arguing and this is the bit I feel a bit embarrassed about, we're arguing about the intricate details of assumptions. It's things like which forecast of employment is best, you know, high growth employment, low growth. How do you convert that employment to demand for land? The nitty gritty of assumptions, and I've got evidence in the public domain on this that you can see it that we're really arguing about, but the starting point should really be, as I sort of said, the developer is confident that there's going to be demand of this. He's staked his investment on it. He's got skin in the game. Why should we be worried any further about this? Yeah, and we see it also like on a kind of a different channel. Like right now, the independent hearings panel on the Wellington District plan tried to come up with assessments of whether council zoned enough effective housing supply to exceed expected demand by at least 20% over the forecast period. Now, all of this stuff is going to be fraught and to my mind it's just endogenous anyway that expected demand is going to depend on what house and land prices are and what house and land prices are going to depend on whether you've got restrictive zoning in place or not. We've got a spot where in industrial cases and retail cases you're having to look at these contentious measures of expected demand and prove a case to be allowed to do stuff. In housing You've got competing experts, one that seemed a little bit off the wall, arguing about whether enough land has been zoned for development. It really seems that there should be a simpler way of doing this, where if there is actually excess supply and a lot of excess supply, you shouldn't see price discontinuities at a zoning boundary unless there's some other natural feature that happens to coincide with it. If it were the case that Wellington had zoned enough land for urban development there wouldn't be a sharp jump in prices at the rural urban boundary. If it had been the case that they had really zoned enough land for tall apartment towers, you wouldn't see price discontinuities at the boundary between places that are allowed to build tall and places that aren't. Those can be indicators of effective scarcity. And then the same thing would be true again on industrial developments and rural land. If you can provide a massive capital gain on a piece of land by just allowing more stuff to happen on it, that seems a pretty good indication that that zoning is inherently scarce relative to demand. Yeah, exactly. And I think you've hit the nail on the head, particularly with that endogeneity, because all of this analysis that we do assumes that demand is exogenous, that it just comes from somewhere else and it's not driven, it's not jointly determined with supply, yeah. but, but but it is, and prices are going to adjust. And in some cases, it's a case of sort of, if you build it, they will come. If you build it and there is an excess supply, then prices are going to come down, the developers are going to have to sharpen their pencils and improve things, and people are going to come and fill that excess supply. In these kinds of process, what's the all-up cost of all of these consultancy reports and the delay that is imposed by the requirement to produce them? 
yeah, I'd struggle to put numbers on it, but it gets expensive for developers. They need an army of consultants. It's not just economists. There are a lot of other consultants involved in this. And some of them legitimately are looking at adverse effects, which is fair enough, but it's certainly pretty costly. There's a long delay. And quite often what I'm involved in is the plan change. So that is a rezoning from rural to residential, for example, after that, there's the consent. So mm-hmm. that, that's actually another step in the process. And it can be a bit easier, of course, once you've got the plan change, but it's still another step and requires consultants and lawyers and planners and all those sort of people. So this is before they've even struck a, a spade in the ground kind of thing and moved the dirt. So there's a big upfront cost before any of that happens. I really doubt that anyone who is involved in setting the national policy statement on highly productive land fully understood what they were doing. If I remember right, even National supported it because Federated Farmers seemed to like the idea of blocking farmers from doing anything other than farming. The consequences of this wind up being substantial. What sorts of remedies would you see as being feasible? Like, How can we get rid of this kind of kludge? One of the first things I think is around that national policy statement on highly productive land, I think it should be up for urgent review. It is causing a lot of problems and I see it with a lot of my clients and hear it through the grapevine that it is really making it difficult for developers to develop land and do things like solve the housing crisis. I'm pretty sure the Treasury expressed concern about exactly this. They said, we're worried that this is going to make it hard to build new houses. And I see that happening. So I think the first thing is that should really be up for review. There's limited basis in economics for it. There's limited market failure that I see. And again, I think the Treasury said pretty much the same thing. So that's one thing. For me, another thing is more broadly around the Resource Management Act and how it defines things like the environment and how it defines effects. And the environment is defined very broadly, includes economic, cultural, social factors, all this sort of stuff. Effects doesn't really have a definition in the RMI that that I can see. I'm not a lawyer, but it's not clear there's a definition. I look at it from an economist perspective and I look at it as an externality. What is an adverse effect on third parties? When you're thinking about demand, for example, that's not an externality because demand influences the developer. It's internalised with the developer. If there's not enough demand, well, they're going to be the one that suffers. So there's really no strong definition of effects. And I think any rewrite of that RMA or that sort of legislation needs something along those lines. I also wish that we could get the Commerce Commission to have a bit of an oversight role where a developer would be able to have remedy through the Commerce Commission if plans had anti-competitive effect, that if you could just point to sharp price discontinuities between zoned land and unzoned land that aren't to do with provision of infrastructure services or land upgrades to make it fit for development, That on its own should be evidence that the zoning is too tight and is having anti-competitive effect. Commerce Commission then being able to come in and say it's important for competition for this development to be allowed. That would be a lot faster than the kind of rigmarole you're having to go through. I agree, absolutely. And having that Commerce Commission oversight role would hopefully also prevent this sort of behaviour from incumbents 
where they are able to agitate against a new proposal on the basis of, of competition effects, basically. If they know the Commerce Commission is there and that sort of thing's not going to fly, I would hope we sort of stop that avenue to block new development. Yeah, it'll require legislation setting that kind of a role for the Commerce Commission and direction to ComCom to staff up in that area. Otherwise, they're not going to bother doing it. But if we look at the first order serious rorts in New Zealand that enable cartel style effects, it's coming through land use planning and other regulatory barriers to entry. And man, I wish we had more attention paid to it. Earlier, you were telling me about a case in Waipu around a new development and some objections to it from existing uh, petrol stations. What's going on there? Sure. So there's there's a new development in Waipu. I'm not personally involved in this, but it's been in the media. And it's a petrol station, and it's got a, some associated fast food outlets with it and things like this. It's By all accounts, it's going to be a pretty good development and really good for travellers and things like that. One so that's of, on the new highway, right? I believe so, yes, okay. yeah. And one of the critiques that has been made of it by, for example, existing petrol stations but also existing commercial shops there is that they're not going to be able to compete with the lower prices being offered by this new development. Now, when you look at this from a competition economist perspective, you're like, well, that's fine because we get these lower prices, we get this new competition in, and that's best for consumers. Now, I, I don't know if these existing, the incumbents have been able to actually make this claim or are putting submissions in, but certainly in the media, the way it's reported in the media, they're not happy with it on that avenue. And they, they will have an avenue for that through those retail distribution effects to be able to try and block this development. Well, and it also gets to one of the overarching problems with this whole kind of approach where you have to prove sufficient excess demand. It precludes development that is intended to drive a kind of crappy competitor out of business, right? So imagine that you've got a small town, it's got one supermarket that is really underperforming. Maybe there's mice that are running all over the produce all the time or something. If you can't prove that there's so much excess demand that you wouldn't hurt that competitor that should be driven out of business, because by specification in this example, they're terrible and it's best that somebody else be able to steal their customers, you're not going to be allowed to do it. And like, if you look at Schumpeterian dynamics, competition is a dynamic process and that will often drive competitors out of business. And that's how you discover who's who should be in business, right? Our, our planning processes seem to make that impossible. That's right. And one of the things when you look at this, when competition economists and those involved in this field look at this, it's one of the key things about competition is it is a process and it is not about protecting competitors or what we say, holding an umbrella over competitors' heads. It is not about that. Absolutely. Some may be driven out of business, but ultimately it's better for consumers. But even if they're not, competition gives those incumbents an incentive to sharpen their pencils and say actually I've got this new petrol station opening up down the road I'm going to have to lower my prices I'm going to have to improve my services improve my quality and again all of that is actually good for consumers. Yeah and that all goes back to old work by Bill Baumol right you don't even have to have the entry for it to have the effect just the threat of entry can provide discipline until you make it illegal to have new entry and then you get a terrible problem like New Zealand. Yeah contestable markets exactly. Well, it'll be depressing in one sense if we put you out of a job on this, but 
it's got to be just be like soul killing that you're having to put your time and effort into work that never should have had to have been done in the first place. And I'm sure that there is more productive use of your talents than proving that water flows downhill. Absolutely. One of the things I've been big on for quite a while is trying to improve the rigor of economics and all of this RMA decision making. And if I could put my time towards more rigorous exercises, have a really strong basis in economics, I'd be much happier. Well, Kevin, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And I certainly hope we can get progress on this one. It's a terrible mess. We're not going to get progress in housing if we don't start relying more on these kinds of price signals and less on estimates of effective demand. And then going more broadly into commercial and industrial premises, I hadn't fully appreciated how terrible these effects are in preventing new development. And man, it needs some attention. Thank you so much. Thank you, listeners. Thank you.